Hey sister friend, welcome to the Shades of Trauma Healing Podcast. I'm Jenny L. Taylor, a trauma coach, trauma thriver, and daughter of God, living loved. This space is for you sisters who want to begin healing and living fully, but the effects of childhood trauma keeps you stuck, scared, and unfulfilled. I'm so glad you're here. In this podcast, you'll receive trauma education, practical strategies, biblical applications, and motivational tips to support your trauma healing journey. So grab your journal, settle into your favorite spot, and let's get started. When it comes to the construction of a new building, there are elements and steps that must be in place and they need to go in a specific order. You first begin with the plan. You have a plan of what you want the finished building to look like. And then the construction part begins by pouring a firm foundation. The pillars and the walls of the structure would then sit on this foundation as construction continues. Today, I'll be sharing with you four pillars of trauma healing, which is considered to be the standard in the trauma and mental health industry. And because this podcast speaks to Christian women, I will start with a firm foundation that will support these pillars so you can begin experiencing your holistic healing. For Christian women, that firm foundation is Christ. And before I share these pillars, let's talk about what it means to have Christ as the base of your trauma healing. Over the years, I've read many personal development books. I've been reading about this since I was in my early teenage years. And some of the concepts I understood, some of them I applied. And with others, I needed more time and maturity to implement them. The further I got into my healing journey, I found that I was experiencing development in certain areas like handling my emotions and being less triggered by things outside of my control. But somehow I still felt like something was missing. A key part of my healing was missing and that's because there was something missing. The key for me was understanding who I was in Christ, my grounding in Christ. I read books about what I should do and what I should be. Society had its own message. The church even chimed in on what a Christian woman of color should look like or in terms of how I should act. There were expectations. There were voices everywhere. Consciously and unconsciously, those messages, which were not all bad, they crept into my psyche as I formed my identity. As a Christian woman, I tried to live my life as best as I could according to the biblical principles through the power of the Holy Spirit. However, as I got older, I continued to grow and change, and as I spent more time in Scripture, I began to see clashes between who society was calling me to be and who God created me to be. As I continued to do my trauma work, some of the issues that were revealed were so painful that I would cry out to God for understanding and strength to continue. I began questioning how much of my behaviors or my characteristics were actually a response to or influenced by trauma, influenced by society, or whether or not I was actually living as the woman God wanted me to be. 
These questions drove me into a deeper relationship with God, and I began actively seeking my identity in Christ. I started by getting to know God for who he is. And when I say God, I am referring to the Trinity. I started to get to know his character, his heart, his plans for me, for humanity. I began reading the Old Testament. I loved the Old Testament and there was a time I didn't really fully understand most of it or I could not see God's love in the stories as compared to the New Testament. And years ago, through inductive Bible study, I was able to see God in a new light. If you've done inductive Bible study, you know that it asks you to write or to make markings over specific words in the Bible using symbols and a key to move through the passage. One thing I had to do as I read the books of the Old Testament was draw a red heart whenever I saw God's love or actions of love towards his people. Once I got far enough into my study and I would be flipping through the pages of my Bible, I would just be seeing all these red hearts. And it really drove home to me how much God loved his people, what he did to show his love time and time again. The visual representation of God's love drawn in the little hearts in my Bible made me realize that if God loved rebellious Israel so much, whose sin and idolatry was so vividly depicted, then he must really be a God of love. And if he could love Israel, then he could certainly love me. Not saying that I am any better or Israel is any worse, but it's referencing the fact that we're all sinful and God's love is not based on what Israel did or what I do, but based on who God is because God is in fact love. Many of us grew up with parents who did the best they could, but they did not always represent God well. Even in church, the picture of God that some people get is a God who is to be feared rather than a loving protector. As I continued studying inductively, it led me to ask questions about who God says I am. Now that I got a better picture of who he is, I can trust what he was saying. So I decided to look into who I am in Christ. What was God's plan for me? Why did he even bring me into this world? This led me to a study of the book of Ephesians. And my friends, wow, that changed my life. I began to understand how God really sees me, what he thinks about me, the plans he has for my life, the plans he had even before my parents thought about having me. In Ephesians, I learned that even before he made this world, God loved me and chose me to be in Christ. He chose me to be holy without fault in his eyes. He sees me as faultless. God decided in advance to adopt me into his own family by bringing me into himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to do it. And you can find that in Ephesians 1 verses 4 to 5. For someone who grew up with abandonment issues and feelings of neglect, who sometimes question why God made me, if he knew I would go through such pain in childhood, this was gold. If I could trust what God said about me 
and how much he loves me, then I could begin to view my entire life through the eyes of a God who wanted me so much that he took extreme steps to unite me to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He did all of this because he values me, he loves me, and because it gives him great pleasure to do so. This concept, learning this, really helped to reframe my trauma history. I moved from blaming God to understanding the consequences of sin and God's desire and ability to redeem and restore anything or anyone who is broken or hurt. What? This is not the dictatorial, judgmental God I learned about. This is not the God who was waiting for me to slip up with a lightning bolt to zap me at the first occurrence of sin. No, what I was learning is that this is a God who loves because he is love. This was a game changer. You will notice in my podcast intro, I always say I'm a daughter of God living loved. And that's because this is who I am and this is how I feel This is what I've come to know, that God really loves me. Studying scripture gave me the foundation I needed to know who God truly is and who I am in Christ. With this foundation, I continued my healing journey, knowing that God loved me so much that he in fact wanted my healing. He didn't plan for me to go through what I went through. That was a consequence of sin. However, he is a redeemer. He wanted to give me the answers and the healing I needed and I could trust him in my process. There are many beautiful descriptions of identity in Christ in the book of Ephesians and I encourage you to read that book slowly and prayerfully, even inductively if that is your thing. I will put a link to inductive Bible study in the show notes if that is of interest to you. Okay, so we have our foundation set. Let's dive into the four pillars that have become the norm in trauma healing work. I first learned about these pillars from the work of Dr. Eric Gentry and the Arizona Trauma Institute. And the four pillars are one, relational safety and preparation, two, education and skills building, three, desensitization and integration, four, post-traumatic growth and resilience. I'll provide an overview of what's involved in each stage and in later episodes, it will naturally be integrated as I will expand upon the pillars and what you can expect to experience if you are in trauma treatment. So looking at the first pillar, relational safety and preparation. This is the most important pillar in trauma healing because it sets the tone for everything that comes next. For healing to take place, relational safety must be there because this helps the client build trust once there is effective communication and the ability to repair ruptures. By ruptures, I mean something happening in session. It could be something that is said that triggers the client. The professional, for example, may remind the client of someone or a past triggering experience, and this is called transference. If the clients begin to transfer their feelings about the situation onto the therapist, there must be a safe space to explore the transference in a supportive way. 
at other times if the professional knowingly or usually unknowingly says something that triggers the client or impacts the client in a upsetting way, this too needs to have space to be processed. When I work with clients at the end of each session, I always ask clients to give feedback and I encourage them to share what went well for them, what didn't go well, or what could be more supportive. The aim of this is to help bring out anything that came up in session that could potentially cause a rupture. Once it's out in the open, we can address it before it has time to fester and become a threat to the healing relationship. The relational aspect focuses on helping clients feel safe and promotes trust building. The responsibility for preparation in this first pillar lies more on the side of the mental health professional. This involves everything that is done from the first encounter with the potential client and it continues at every coaching or therapy session. Things we need to consider as professional includes our meeting space, the decor, is it cluttered, is it calm, is it relaxing for our clients? If we are meeting online, we also have to consider the Zoom background that is used. As an example, I wanted to change my office color to a beautiful teal blue when I started working. Because I work with trauma clients, I first researched the effects of different colors on trauma survivors. And thankfully, everything indicated that the color I wanted to choose would have a calming effect. Now, I was making this color change after I had begun seeing some of my clients. Therefore, I only painted one accent wall in the teal and I left the other wall color that my clients were used to. I work remotely and online, so when I met with my clients after I made this change, I asked them for their response. I asked for their opinion to the wall color. And I was totally prepared to change my computer angle so clients only saw the soft gray wall that they were accustomed to seeing if that was more supportive. Fortunately, no one had a problem with the teal color. As a trauma specialist, these are things that I consider because I want to support my clients and their journey and everything in the environment can be of support. I share all of this with you to let you know that as you consider starting your trauma healing work, know that you have a voice and you have a choice. Think of what is most supportive for you. And as you meet with your chosen professional and you begin to build trust, use your choice and your voice to ask for what is most supportive for you as you pursue your trauma healing journey. Pillar number two is education and skills building. This is one of my favorite parts of treating trauma because it provides such a physical and emotional relief to clients early in the process of healing. In this pillar, I help clients understand that the state of their body directly influences how they feel, think, and behave. If a client feels guilty about responding out of fear when they were faced with a triggering situation, for example, we can explore how their bodies learn to respond in fear based on the trauma they experienced. We talk about the autonomic nervous system, ANS, and how trauma affects the body on a biological and physical or physiological level. The ANS is responsible for regulating those involuntary responses in the body, like the heart rate, digestion, breathing, and so forth. 
It is helpful for clients to know that when your nervous system is dysregulated, different chemicals are released into the bloodstream. Large increases of adrenaline results in emotional responses like fear or withdrawal or flight, while a large increase in noradrenaline, on the other hand, results in angry, hostile or aggressive behavior. In such cases, clients come to see that their unwanted behavior is not a planned choice or a forethought, but a response to a body pumped full of behavior-impacting chemicals. Let me just clarify, we don't use this knowledge as an excuse for unwanted behavior. We use this as a starting point to help understand how the traumatized body can respond so quickly in the face of a trigger so we can take steps towards healing and change. Another area we explore is the anterior cingulate cortex, and I'll refer to this as the ACC. The ACC is the part of the brain that scans the environment for danger that is relevant to the person based on their lived experience, and it ignores everything else. I've experienced this in the past. When I would see only scary or bad things in a situation or an environment based on my past lived experience, my brain not knowing the time difference between when the trauma first happened and the current time was just trying to protect me from perceived threats as if the threat was happening in real time. So when my clients begin to understand the extent to which their body is involved in their behavior, they begin letting go of guilt and shame around their responses and they begin to see hope in the ability to change. And this is where the skill building element comes in. I really enjoy doing skill building work with my clients because I get to teach them how to do it while practicing it at the same time. And there are dual benefits to this. Of course, it helps me because I am practicing in real time, but that is not really the focus. The session is for the client. From the client's perspective, it's helpful for them to see me doing it. They're able to observe how I practice the exercise and even notice any physical changes that is happening in me as they notice the calming effects of the exercises. So then it encourages them to try it for themselves. My process is usually I model it first, explaining to the client what they can expect And then we do the exercises together and then I have the clients practice it on their own. And between sessions, they are left to also do it in real life scenarios and come back to session and share with me how the experience went. There is beauty in doing the exercises together first so we can witness each other's nervous system changing and the calming effects it has on the body And then reporting back after the clients have done it at home, then we can debrief and make any changes or tweaks or discuss things that occurred while they practiced it. The skills building exercises focus on getting the client's body into a regulated state and it teaches them how to practice regulating when triggered. It is super important to see that clients have a pattern of self-regulation between sessions because I never want to try to access traumatic memories or process traumatic experiences with a client who is in a dysregulated body. So there must be a history and a 
clear demonstration that the client is using the skills during session and they're becoming more regulated and this is helpful for doing deeper trauma work. When I was doing my trauma training, the professor used an example of Bruce Banner and the Hulk, and that has stuck with me. It's something that I use with clients, and I'll use it again today in hopes that it expands your understanding as well. A regulated body or nervous system means that the client is in Bruce Banner brain, which is the calm, cognitively aware, the body is relaxed, breathing is even, and the clients are able to think before acting. Many of us are probably familiar with the Hulk, with all the Marvel movies out there, so you probably know where I'm going with this. A dysregulated body or system is like being in Hulk brain. An event occurs, the ACC senses danger, pumps chemicals into the body that impacts the nervous system and influences a change in behavior. The time between the action and the response is very, very short. There is not much time to think about the best way to respond. Your system automatically goes into fight, fright, flee, or freeze. The muscles tense up, the mind is distracted, there are feelings of anger, and the person gets scared, or they go into self-protective mode. Once the body gets this jacked up with all the chemical cocktails that's causing the system to become dysregulated, it can take days for a person to begin to get calm and feel regulated and go back to Bruce Banner mode. Understanding this brings my clients so much freedom. And the thing is, with the education comes the practical path of it. And with skills building, I work with clients to help them become more aware of their body. Many trauma survivors dissociate or distance themselves from their bodies. They have to learn to reconnect and begin noticing how they feel physically on a day-to-day basis. So the first step is to help clients become more aware of their body by slowing things down, noticing sensations and feelings that occur just before a feeling of anger, for example, may erupt. Once a client is able to recognize their body, we begin tracking the changes that occur. So for some clients, it could be a racing heart or heat in their chest. Some experience a churning in their stomach that signals the start of a shift from Bruce Banner brain into Hulk mode. And once clients are able to notice and track the changes in their body, I help them practice the skills building exercises to regulate the changes that they do notice so that they can get back into a calm, safe, regulated Bruce Banner mode. The skills that the clients use are often very safe and very gentle that they can practice on their own once they have been taught to do so. At this point, let me just recap that the pillars I've covered so far are relational safety and preparation, which is number one, and number two, education and skills building. There are two other pillars to go. However, I am going to split this episode into two parts so that it's not too long and I know we're all busy people and my aim and the hope for this podcast is for you to be able to digest the information in smaller chunks so that you can really process what I am saying and what you are learning. 
So stay tuned for part two, where I will go into the last two pillars, desensitization and integration, and pillar number four, post-traumatic growth and resilience. I will connect with you next week for the final two pillars of trauma healing for Christian women of color. If this podcast encouraged, inspired, or taught you something, do share it with another sister friend who needs support in her healing journey. I would also love for you to go to Apple Podcast right now and leave a review for the show. Thanks for listening. I'm cheering for your healing. Until next week, breathe and be blessed.